This is C-SPAN's The Weekly. I'm Steve Scully in Washington and very excited to sit down with Joe Fould, who is the co-founder and president of the Campaign Workshop. I know we try to schedule this on a couple of different occasions, impeachment, an attack inside Iraq of an Iranian general, all kind of superseding the news of the last couple of weeks. But let's talk 2020 politics. And thanks for being with us. Happy to be here, Steve. Let's begin by breaking down the candidates and the race. And I thought the way we would start is is look at the top-tier Democratic candidates. Give me your overall assessment, the strengths and the weaknesses of the candidate and also of their campaign. Let's begin with one of the front-runners, former Vice President Joe Biden. Well, so I think the strengths of Joe Biden are that he has been in the public eye for so long. People feel like they know him. They have a connection to him. Um, and I think that really is a strength. I think the weakness also is that he is not necessarily seen as something new to people on the ground and people who are engaging. I think that there is a stability that Joe Biden, um, you know, former vice president, U.S. senator has um, that people may be looking for. And so there's benefit to that. But I also the concern that you hear from people who are involved in politics is just that it's not a dynamic and engaging campaign. In 2016, one of the narratives that Hillary Clinton had to deal with the whole email scandal is Hunter Biden and Ukraine going to dog him through this election season. I mean, I don't think so. I think that there will always be people who will talk about that. I certainly don't think in the Democratic primary that that is a huge issue. If he gets past the Democratic primary, could it become more? Maybe is the short answer. But I I actually think that um, for the most part, uh, Democratic voters are pretty sympathetic to Joe Biden. What they're really looking for is who is the candidate who can beat Trump. I don't know that they think that um, this issue is what is hanging over Joe Biden. I think it's more of Joe Biden's debate performances. Is he engaging? Is he really connecting with people out on the stump and on the, and the debates? I'm reading a book titled Reagan Rising, and it's looking at Ronald Reagan post-1976, who is going to turn 70 in 1980 during the campaign season. And, of course, he won as, uh, at that point, the oldest elected president. Donald Trump is now older. Bernie Sanders is in his late 70s, Joe Biden in his mid-70s. Well, I I think people would say uh, maybe 80 is the new 60. I don't know. I think that um, we are living longer. I think there is a longevity um, of candidates, obviously, that have been in the public eye for a long time and our people are open to that. I do think it is both a it is a strength and a weakness at the same time. I think that, again, for uh, for Biden, the strength is he has been around for a really long time. People know him. He is a known quantity. But again, age, that's sort of in the eye of the beholder. Some people think that it's important to have someone who really has made decisions over a long period of time. Others are looking for new energy and new. And, and so I think you're going to see different voters looking for different things. And of course, I know you have said so often it takes the right candidate with the right message at the right time. So as you look at this field, let's turn to another candidate who is trying to capture the magic he had in 2016, Senator Bernie Sanders. Size up his campaign. 
Well, so the strength of the Bernie Sanders campaign is that they get to pick up almost where they left off, right? They have a core group of people who have supported them and never left. People who support Bernie Sanders and really support Bernie Sanders really support Bernie Sanders. They're not really going anywhere. And he can lose a considerable amount of voters that he got in 2016 in the primaries and still do very, very well in these primaries. And I think that he has been underestimated throughout the primaries. I think his strengths in Iowa and New Hampshire, just the core group of people that he has, um, that's going to keep him in the field for a long time. This past week, the New York Times, with something I had never seen before, basically a co-endorsement of two U.S. senators, Amy Klobuchar and Elizabeth Warren. Let's begin with the Warren campaign and her candidacy. Um, I think that Elizabeth Warren has been running a good, strong campaign. I think field, she... Uh, really has done a good job of engaging with people, of building an audience. I think there are a lot of people who are still very connected to Elizabeth Warren, and that has really sort of grown. I think it is, um, I think in some respects, like Bernie, and like, frankly, a lot of candidates these days, you either really like them or you don't. I think she... Elizabeth Warren has some people that are really, really big fans of hers. And then, frankly, there are other folks that are on the other side of that coin that are not. And so it'll be really interesting to see how that moves into other primary states and how um, she can sort of break through and move people. I feel like she is a candidate that I mean, has a lot to say. I think she's done really well in defining what she believes. I think that uh, there is some concern about that from voters who are more moderate or, frankly, voters who aren't going to vote in the Democratic primary but are going to vote in a general election and whether or not they will support an Elizabeth Warren versus a Donald Trump. And, of course, one of those concerns, the whole debate over Medicare for all, and, and the Warren campaign may disagree with this assessment, but I think if you look at it, she was either walking back or backpedaling this plan for Medicare for all because of the price tag and the concerns, especially in the polling, that this did not fare well among those moderate Democrats that you just pointed to. Was that a tactical mistake? Um, I, I think it will be a... <laughs> We've seen that happen a few times during this campaign, I mean, early on. I mean, I think that we've seen a few candidates start out with, uh, you know, with basically universal health care, Medicare for all, and then move away from it. I think... uh, But that was one of her centerpieces. It totally was. And I think my view is you can't really move away from it. I think that I, I think it is... I think that voters really are looking for candidates who are clear on what they believe and stick with it. And so I think, honestly, I think that is what has helped Bernie in a lot of ways is he has not wavered and that has been helpful for him. I think this is um, one of the challenges that Elizabeth Warren has. I don't know that she really can back away from where she started with healthcare. But looking at it objectively... If she is the nominee mm-hmm. proposing Medicare for all, mm-hmm. eliminating private health insurance, yep. how does that fare in a general election? I, I think it is 
I, I think it can be problematic for for Democrats. Right now, we have, when it comes to health care, we have been on the offense for a really long time when it comes to health care. I don't think that... Um, I don't think we should be put on the defensive. Listen, I, I'm a big believer in, in that everyone should have health care. I think the issue that we have had in this country for a really long time is how to pay for it and how we have so many different points of interest that I think that this will continue to be a debate. So I think how that is phased in and how that happens is going to be really hard. And I think it's a challenge for her, for sure. And of course, Republicans have two goals to win the presidency, but also to keep the U.S. Senate. Conversely, Democrats want to recapture control of the Senate. So that is as much of an issue on the ballot this year as it is the White House. Absolutely. I mean, I think that we have the Senate, the House. I will also say that, and I've talked about you with this, we've talked about this before in the past, that there are also this year so many races on the ballot that we are, there are half a million elected officials in the United States, which is a staggering number. And there is the number that is on, that are on the ballot for re-election this year is huge. So it's hundreds of thousands of elected officials are running for office. And so we tend in Washington, D.C. to think about as elections as being federal elections. But the truth is, is if you are in a given state that there is everything from local elections to state legislative elections to ballot measures that are on the ballot. Um, and those elections matter to people and affect people as much as the federal elections do. So there's a lot at stake this year. So let's look at two races, one in the Senate, the Alabama Senate race, in which a Democrat winning in Alabama, Doug Jones, and also more recently, the Kentucky governor's race in which a Democrat won. Was that a case of Democrats doing well, or was it a case of weak Republican candidates and a Democrat able to step right in? I mean, I think it's a bit of both. I think that the these days you have to have both sides of a coin. You have to have a reason for people to vote for you. I think that in both of those cases, I think that um, in Kentucky, we had a good candidate versus a bad candidate. Again, same thing in Alabama. Um, it was more of a really bad candidate in Alabama. And Doug Jones was able to, you know, uh, step up and run a good campaign and have, and, but it is the Senate will be a challenge for us to take back the Senate. I mean, the Senate is a challenge. I think it will be a question of how things play out in the House over impeachment as well. What will, will there be any backlash in targeted districts around that as well? I think that what you will find this year is that we live in a country where it's very polar, where the persuasion is very narrow. I think that in these states, campaigns want to localize elections and talk about local issues. It is very hard to do that these days with the lack of local news, with the lack of ability to get out a local message. I think the world has, world has changed around that. So even these small local races have become have been run on some federal issues. So that is really going to be interesting to see how all of this plays out. So why then did millions of Obama supporters in 2012 sit out the 2016 race? I mean, I think part of that reason is that you have to give folks 
you have to engage with voters. You have to give them a reason to vote, right? As we, as I talked about this idea of both sides of an election, the positive and the negative, right? The why, why is someone voting against a candidate and why is someone supporting a candidate? And I think we have to do both these days and it's very hard. Um, so I think that's part of the reason is that uh, people didn't feel a vested interest in that election to them, that there were voters. Um, but I, I will also say on the local election side, you're also going to see, and it happens every presidential, you're going to see people that go in the ballot box who vote for president of the United States, who maybe vote for U.S. Senate, and then who skip the rest of the ballot. And I think that is going to have a huge impact on state legislative races. We have... Um, the the maps are going to be redrawn in you know after this election. I think that is really going to be interesting to see how this all plays out for redistricting. Let me remind our listeners: we are talking to Joe Fould. He is the founder and president of the Campaign Workshop, based here in Washington D.C., which is what. So we're a political consulting firm. We work with clients on. A number of issues. I'm really helping them solve problems when it comes to the idea of how to communicate with voters, and that can be candidates or working with groups and organizations to better move an issue. We also do political training for groups and organizations and candidates running for office. I've been doing that for a really long time. And then we do general strategy, really trying to help folks figure out whether it's a group organization in D.C. that is trying to move an issue forward nationally or locally or a candidate running for office, how to think through their strategy. So a lot of different fun things um, on the advertising side, which is predominantly what we do. We do a lot of digital and direct mail advertising. We like to call ourselves a targeted communications firm. And uh, I enjoy what I do. and It's a lot of fun. Oh, your passion for politics is so evident. So let's talk about uh, the remaining Democratic field. Senator Amy Klobuchar, it seems to me her path to the nomination includes doing well in her neighboring state of Iowa. The first of the nation caucuses scheduled for Monday, February 3rd. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that would be her path. I think the the this dual endorsement from the New York Times may help her a little bit as far as momentum. I think she is getting some momentum. I think it is going to be hard for her to do well in these states, but we will see. Well, let me jump in on that dual endorsement. What was your reaction to that? Um, my reaction is that I think it is it is interesting to see how editorial boards are playing in these elections, how they are remaining relevant. Um, I don't listen. I don't think I think the New York Times did this endorsement because they like these candidates and they want to um, have people engage with those candidates and think about their choices. Uh, it is a pretty big megaphone that they have, especially among opinion leaders. So uh, I, I thought it was really interesting. I think it's going to be interesting to see what the impact is with primary and caucus goers. So Senator Klobuchar's number one strength is what and her number one weakness is what? I mean, I think her number one strength is that she uh, is a, you know, st strong Midwesterner on the ballot in in Iowa. Uh, she has a connection to those voters. I think right now that is a launching point for her. And I think that can help. I think people see her as being engaging and tenacious. 
I think the weakness right now is just that she hasn't really been able to build a big enough base of followers to have her campaign grow fast enough. Because one of the assessments we have seen in the Obama candidacy is that he really was able to grow step by step to build enthusiasm, to shape the message, which was consistent from the beginning, and build on that organization that ultimately got him the nomination. For sure. And I I think that what you find in these presidential races is that you have this climb to – um, Iowa, New Hampshire, and the sort of, and then you know, South Carolina, Nevada, right? Those early states are part of that initial liftoff, and then it just really grows from there quickly. And so you have to capitalize on that initial momentum. I think um, we certainly saw that with Obama. We've seen that with other uh, presidential campaigns historically. I think it will be really interesting to see this year. If that changes as far as the calculus for elections, will there be this sort of juggernaut that comes after the early primary states um, or not? Right. You have Mike Bloomberg, who's betting that it won't, who's betting that momentum from these early primaries won't really engage voters. And there will be room in Super Tuesday to get in there and win voters. I'm not sure that that is going to be the case. I still see and think that early primary momentum is going to matter to voters, but we'll see. Well, let's talk about the Bloomberg campaign in just a moment. But first, a couple of the other Democratic candidates, the former mayor of South Bend, Indiana, Pete Buttigieg, who did try to model his campaign in many respects on the Obama candidacy, size up his race so far. Uh, I've said on your uh, show before that I'm a Pete fan. I think that uh, it is it is again the benefits of him is he's had a pretty clear message from the beginning and was really built step by step. I think the hard part for him is that he is still a small town mayor who has not um, had as much ability to engage early on as some of these other folks who have built bigger bases. I think he's done a really good job of building a campaign from scratch and really engage with folks, but it will be really a question of how does he do in Iowa, right? And and I think that's the real test for uh, Pete Buttigieg is how does he do in Iowa? If he does well in Iowa, I think it will be a big launching point for him. I, I think, again, you're going to see this with other campaigns too, that Iowa, New Hampshire are really big tests. And doing well means what? Well, this is the, you know, million dollar or, you know, Again, if you're another candidate, a hundred million dollar question. It is um, that has always been the question in presidential politics, right? Of is second good enough? In some places, it has been to launch campaigns, right? I think that um, it is going. The yardstick is going to be different for different candidates as far as how you measure what success is. So that's really going to be a question of how close. Are these campaigns, if there are a few campaigns that are bunched together, does that move on to the next uh, primary caucus? I I am real. I think that there is going to be a big discussion about what success means. I think if you have a candidate that far outpaces others in these early primaries and early caucuses, I think that will make a big difference. 
Andrew Yang, former Governor Deval Patrick, Senator Michael Bennett, uh, all in the low to mid-single digits in the early primary in caucus states. As you look at their candidacies, why are they in this race? Well, I think they, the Yang campaign is in there to really talk about specific issues. And they have a movement that, frankly, I think might last beyond the presidential campaign. It's not just, I feel like, about um, winning this presidential because I don't think they're going to win. And I really like that campaign and like some of the things they're doing. But I I see that path being very difficult for them. But they might be able to be involved in politics in other ways and really move issues and messages forward. I think what you're – I think that will, that is also like – the good part about being a Democrat these days is I still think there's some really great candidates on the ballot. Do I think that – listen, I like Michael Bennett. I don't think that Michael Bennett is going to win these primaries and caucuses. But I think I, I think he's great. I just don't think that – I think in the future this might line up for something else for him to do. But we will see. And Deval Patrick? I, um, great governor. I don't – Again, see a path here for a winning uh, campaign. Uh, I think it's hard. I mean, I think this is a uh, he got in late. I feel like this is going this is a difficult path for him to win. But it's going to be a question of do we win the presidency? Are these folks involved in the next administration in some way? How does this all play out? It's going to be really interesting to watch. Joe Fould is the founder and president of the Campaign Workshop. Let's talk about the Bloomberg candidacy. At last count, he has a staff in excess of 1,300 based in Midtown Manhattan at his campaign headquarters, more than 700 in primary states with a sharp focus on those 16 states on Super Tuesday and is prepared to spend up to a billion dollars in this race. And you're smiling. I'm smiling. I uh, Listen, I think that there are some things that I really like about what Michael Bloomberg is doing. I think the idea of him having this comparative message with Trump already, I think, can help the rest of the candidates. Um, it is it is unprecedented, the amount of money that he is spending in this race. I think he is making a very big bet on Super Tuesday I think it will be really interesting to see if that pays off. He is betting that the primary and caucus momentum of early states won't matter and that no one is going to come out as a clear front runner from those. I am not so sure that that bet will pay off, but it is politics. I know enough about politics as a political consultant to tell to tell you that anything can happen. And it is my belief that this is still a very open process and that, um, again, stranger things have happened uh, as far as who winds up being president of the United States, who wins these elections. So it's it's a very open, fluid process at the moment. I am not going to ask you who you think the Democratic nominee will be, because I think we learned in 2016 predictions uh, can be onerous. But what do you expect to happen over the next month? We have Iowa, followed by New Hampshire, followed by South Carolina, and then Nevada. I, I mean, so so for, first of all, right, I mean, I think that one of the things that you can't 
it, it, what do I expect to happen in the next month? So first of all, we have an impeachment trial going on while we have these um, while we have these elections going on. Um, what I expect that you're going to see is that I think there will be. Uh, front runners emerging from these early primary and caucuses. Can I predict to you what that order is going to be today? I mean, maybe, uh, maybe after this, you and I can bet a beer. We'll put together an envelope and we'll take a guess and we'll see what happens. And I'm happy to come back and talk to you about how my uh, predictions were way off. <laughs> but um, I will say that I think it's again really open. I think this short period of time between now and Iowa is going to go so quickly and that from my perspective um, there's still a lot that can happen. Let's talk about the general election because four of the last five presidents were reelected. So just how big of a task is it regardless of who the Democratic nominee is to defeat a sitting president with a strong economy? I think it's a really, really hard task. I mean, listen, if you look, if history is our guide and we look historically, um, the last election was, first of all, going to be very hard for a Democrat to win. Historically, that had only happened, I think, twice before in the modern presidency that a the party in power gets a third term. So that was very hard. I think that um, – there was not enough of a discussion about that, and there should have been that historically that's a tough precedent to break. I will also say right now that it is very hard if you look at all the models that predict the presidency, most of them predict Donald Trump will win. Does it mean that that is uh, a foregone conclusion? It's not. I mean, I feel like in politics these days that very much anything can happen, but it's really about then taking ownership and saying they're going to go out and vote, they're going to get their friends and family out to vote, that people are going to really participate in these elections, and that that the campaigns themselves communicate to voters why and give them a reason to engage. The message is important, but I want to tap into your expertise. We keep hearing references to the ground game, but what what really does that mean? So what the ground game means, it means different things in different places, right? I think in a caucus, the ground game means that you're really organizing people on the ground to show up and connect to these candidates. That matters a great deal. In early primary states, it matters uh, by really folks early on in a place like New Hampshire getting to know these candidates, engaging, being able to talk to their neighbors I, I think in the early primary states, the ground game matters a lot. I think where it will also potentially matter is if you get into, you know, the mythical floor fight in a Democratic primary, it will matter um, if you we get all the way down through the primaries and get to a convention where there's a floor fight, then those superdelegates and that ground game will also matter there as well. I think that uh, these are very close contests. All of these pri- early primaries, especially, we're talking about small amounts of votes. So the idea of persuading a thousand people or two thousand people to move over to your side in a presidential primary can be the difference between winning and losing a uh, a presidential election, which is crazy, but it's true. 
So what I hear you saying is for political junkies, buckle up. It's going to be quite a year. Yeah. It's, I mean, I think for anyone, I don't think you need to be a political junkie to understand that there's a lot at stake. And I think that this is really important. And I think that this every every election I feel like is the most important election that uh, most important presidential election we've ever had. I think the last one was really important I think this one is really more, more important and whatever side you're on, I think the idea of engaging, getting out and vote and talking to people is so important. If our listeners want to follow you on social media, how can they do so? So I'm at Joe fold on Twitter. Uh, the campaign workshop has its own Twitter feed, which is at CMP W R K S H P. We also have a blog, um, at the campaign workshop.com that we publish twice a week about politics, uh, and advocacy. So feel free to sign up for that. We have a weekly newsletter there that you can sign up for. And yeah, thank you so much for having me on. Fascinating insights as we get underway with the caucuses in Iowa and in New Hampshire. We thank you for being with us. Oh, thanks so much, Steve. Happy to come back again. And a reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app or wherever you download your favorite podcast. And a reminder to follow us on social media at C-SPAN radio. We thank you for listening. 